Oh, you want me to turn it off? Yes. We okay. can't tan your face. Welcome back to the Law Talk podcast from the Hoover Institution, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, the one institution that actually did grant a degree to George Santos. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Titan Key Media, and owner of a series of rest stop Sabaros. And I am joined, as always, by the page and plant of the conservative legal movement. That's mostly a reference to Richard always performing with his shirt entirely unbuttoned. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Uh, fellas, we haven't talked for a while. We did this Federalist Society event together in D.C. a couple months ago. I haven't been much in touch since then. And all of a sudden, I look up, and everyone's in the wrong place all of a sudden. Richard is in California. John is in Arizona. No, Richard is in New York. Oh, I thought you had already gone to California. Not yet, Monique. Oh, okay. Well, because I was assuming that was a production deal with HBO. And then John, I'm assuming an attempt <laughs> to ferry something illicit across the border. <laughs> what do you what are you guys actually up to? Well, I mean, in terms of things, I'm I'm in grandfather land at this point. Uh, so I had two new grandchildren born, one in New York, and we duly saw Annie there. Then we went out to Congratulations, California, Richard. And we saw Ione there. They were born uh, respectively on September 12th yeah. and October 23rd of last year. Uh, so they're hardy veterans, along with older sister Naomi for Annie. And my oh. grandson Noah is having his bar mitzvah, in ten, bar mitzvah in 10 days. And so, I mean, we'd be preoccupied with that. And then there's the question of trying to finish exams, which I've done. And now I write a series of articles about all the things that have gone wrong in the world, but the list is too long to take the whole show up to talk about it. And the other thing I do is I sit as a spectator sitting in my office at NYU watching New York State self-destruct. I, I feel like you and John can go nose to nose on that. The Californian can make just as strong. A case well, I mean, side. I live in three states, California, New York. And Illinois, right? Well chosen, well Richard. Uh, and, and, you know, you want to find three states that are losing population, try those things on for size. Just anyone who needed to, to learn or needed proof that economists uh, don't obey incentives <laughs> themselves is that Richard is impervious <laughs> to economic incentives and competition between states. But I'm... Uh, <laughs> no, he's not impervious. I'm in... Uh, he's too many grandchildren. Well, I was going to say, I'm in Arizona, which also, also seems to be grandparents' land, but not me being grandparents. Like, everyone here seems to be a grandparent. I mean, they're, they're, that's like the... I really love it here. It's very nice and warm and sunny. Uh, I'm here for a meeting of the uh, Pacific <laughs> Legal Foundation, which just got its third cert grant for this term. I mean, it's incredible. They're, you know, Richard. Congratulations they're, they're to you. Richard. These are like they're, your grandchildren, John, the cert grants for PLF. No, they're not. They're definitely not. <laughs> but they're, you know, this is a group that litigates on behalf of uh, property rights primarily, but is expanding into other libertarian issues like free speech and colorblindness. And yeah, for I was trying to think, when was the last time a group had three Supreme Court arguments. Like, I think I was thinking, like, maybe the ACLU and the NAACP back in the 60s, 
But I think this is quite a, sh- a sign of where things are going that a property rights group has three oral arguments at the Supreme Court in one term. That is a real FedSot pub trivia question that you just posed. When was the last yes. time? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a yeah, yeah. First, first reader commenter who gets it in gets a free signed copy of Richard's latest book. <laughs> well, give give pro- him a copy of my oldest. I was going to say the probably be another book. one by the time we're done yeah, with this episode. Book. Um, All right, guys, I'm going to I'll start you with the issue du jour, which is this this steady stream of revelations that President Biden had mishandled classified documents in his post vice presidency. It's a phrase I don't think I've ever used. Uh, Some of them turning up at this think tank office he had in Washington, some of them turning up at his home in Delaware. And obviously this has added political salience because Donald Trump's been raked over the coals for the last several months over his mishandling of classified information. But because that's the lens through which everyone is looking this story, I'd actually like to start by just bracketing the Trump comparisons for a moment. We can get to them, but I just want to consider what Biden did to the extent we know in isolation. So, John, I will start with you. How bad is what Biden has done here? And, and is it worse politically or legally? Uh, well, I think it's worth worse politically than legally, but there are people uh, working in the federal government who had you know, classified, uh, classified access who have been fired or prosecuted for cases that are not all that different than this. There are cases of people who've taken documents home to work on them, who've taken just notes of classified meetings home or carried them in unsecured ways who've been punished. So uh, you know, it's a serious thing. One thing we still haven't learned yet, actually in either case, um, is the what's called the damage assessment. What is the potential damage that was done to the national security of the United States, which involves what kind of information was in the documents, A, but also B, what's the likelihood that a foreign government or hostile power or just someone unauthorized could have seen them, could have grabbed them and looked at them. Uh, so that's also serious too, because I just, I, I don't know about you guys, but my Corvette is pretty easily accessible. <laughs> I mean, like the, just to say, you know, I put them in a box locked you know, my box in a locked garage next to my Corvette. And then Online, there are pictures of Hunter Biden driving the Corvette with young women. I mean, come on. I mean, I got that's almost by definition. I'm sure in the next uh, uh, generalized government security briefing, they're going to have pictures of that as things not to do with your classified information. <laughs> so, but not, but not to make light of it, it, it's a, it could be very serious. It depends uh, what the documents are. Um, the second thing, and then uh, see what Richard thinks is, uh, you know, the, I think it sounds it will depend on his. Uh, recklessness. So the you know the law at issue here, there is a federal law. It's called the Espionage Act. Um, it doesn't talk about classified information specifically. It, it talks about unauthorized taking, unauthorized storage, unauthorized uh, transmission of what's called national defense information, defense information, of which classified most classified information is such. It doesn't sound to me yet like Biden intentionally took these, but maybe he did. We don't know that yet either. Maybe he took them because he wanted to use them for his memoirs. Um, But if he didn't take them, then it's a question of how reckless was he? I don't know. The facts adding up now, you know, three three different places, uh, unsecured. um, That sounds pretty reckless. So I think he's if he weren't president, he would be in legal trouble. 
John is a most astute legal analysis. I'm going to go back and sort of talk about this question of mens rea. What's the mental state that you need in order to get yourself in trouble under this act? And the first thing about it is with a crime like this, when you're talking about professionals, you do not have to have an intention to violate the statute uh, that's involved. Now, that means you don't even have to have knowledge that the documents that you were taken are, in fact, privileged or might help that. But even if you knew that, the only thing you have to show is that he had the intention to take those documents, which turned out to be uh, documents that were covered by the national security statute that John referred to. So if you're simply looking at that, there is guilt. And the point about this kind of a statute is it's a prophylactic statute. Uh, there are, of course, going to be penalties for stuff that's going to be released and discovered a compromise. But you put this very broad statute in place so that people have a very clear guideline of what they can and cannot do. You educate them at this in the government from the day they start. And if it turns out you get compliance with this statute, you have no down the road problems of uh, the sort that John mentioned, figuring out the severity of the offense and everything. Else. So I think, in effect, that the, the brutal situation about this is he should be in trouble legally if you were just John Doe um, by virtue of the fact that he took those documents home with him, wholly independent of what was done with him by him or by anybody else. The way the Biden defenses work is very instructive. They have it at, uh, the following ways that Joe Biden is a very hardworking individual. And what we know about hardworking individuals is when they're in transition in and out of the White House, they're going to make mistakes. And so what they do is they kind of say, given all the pressures that were on him, the delegation that he made to other kinds of people in order to handle this stuff, we should praise him for his candor when he turns the stuff up and not consider him to be wrong. I think any of those documents in a political environment or arguments in a political environment will work pretty well, but none of them are legal defenses. If, in fact, he took the documents, let's assume knowing that they were classified documents, even if he didn't know that taking the classified documents home were in violation of the law. And the second thing that they point to is uh, what he did is he promptly determined the, returned the documents the moment the things were identified. Well, the promptly isn't quite the case. The identifications took place, I think, just before the 2022 election, and the return was sometimes later. Then there were the other discoveries, which he didn't quite make to begin with. But even that is at most mitigation of the particular offense under the sliding scale calculus that John referred to in saying how we start to deal with these things. But this is a political case. And, and so what happens is I've seen a number of commentators take the following kind of line. This is absolutely reprehensible, but we can't run a nation if, in fact, we're going to indict our president for something unless we can show that there's palpable harm. It seems to me that the Republicans in the House of Representatives are not particularly warm towards Biden, but I don't believe and I haven't heard any talk of the fact as to whether or not they would say that this breaches a uh, sufficient offense that they should try to impeach him. Remember, you don't have to show that it's a high crime and misdemeanor to impeach. You only have to show it's an offense that the House of Representatives wants to punish. The high crimes and misdemeanor kicks in if you're trying to expel a president from a particular office, but lesser sanctions could be done on lesser stuff. So what I think is going to happen is there's going to be a special prosecutor. Nothing's going to take place in this case in terms of the criminal stuff. But I think, in effect, that the political rhetoric will turn slowly against him because it is very severe. And that what we have to worry about is that there's Biden one documents, Biden two, Biden three. Is there going to be Biden number four? 
um, so that another revelation might create things that make them even worse. So I think, in effect, it's going to be a political hit. I don't want to mention that other guy. Uh, I think standing on his own, uh, the president is surely politically wounded. I am going to mention that other guy, actually. I wanted you to do it in isolation, but I, I am interested in the comparison. See how virtuous it, we are? <laughs> John, I'll give you this first. <laughs> the Biden apologists here have been making roughly the following argument. Look, you can't compare this to Trump. Biden's team finds a few documents. They immediately turn them over, you know, immediately in quotation marks and cooperate with the government. Trump, by contrast, has to have the government come to him. And then there are still documents they can't get back, despite the fact that the Trump team is claiming that they fully cooperated. In, in other words, the problem in this telling is less the precipitating offense than the belligerence and the, and the deception mm -hmm. with the government in the aftermath. Is that is that persuasive to you? So I would say no, because that makes whether the government chooses to prosecute people based on not whether they violate the law, but how nice you are to the government. And that can't be the way our system works, right? Like criminal defendants often put up a belligerent defense uh, to investigations. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton. If you want to talk about someone who should be prosecuted, if we make the standard how much they fight with the government, then Hillary Clinton is way beyond either Trump or Biden, right? Recall Hillary Clinton purposefully set up an alternate computer network through which she coursed all her government email, including all the classified ones, which was unsecured, right? Anybody, if they knew the right IP address of that server, could go into it if they'd wanted to. She was emailing with high government officials. And then when there was an investigation, right. her lawyers went through the emails and destroyed most of them before they turned over any relevant ones to the government, right? She did, they effectively destroyed the evidence. Uh, so that goes well beyond anything Biden or Trump have done here, right? It's as if what Trump did was to personally go down to that little room in Mar-a-Lago where all the documents were and just set them all on fire and then said, what classified documents? I don't have any classified documents. But that can't be the way we uh, decide who to prosecute or not. Now, the, the, the reason that the Trump resistance does get him into trouble is because putting aside the classified, yeah, obstruction of justice, um, refusal to obey a subpoena, lying to federal officials. Those are all independent and separate. We think of as process crimes. And you could go after Trump or his employees for that, regardless of whether the classified information was that was uh, improperly stored or not. So that's that's the main difference. Now, the, but on the other hand, what I would say uh, is this: Trump had it was president when these documents were created, or when he had them, at least, uh, there, you know, Trump is making the argument, which is correct, that presidents have the right to instantly declassify anything. All the classification power in the government actually just flows down from the president. Anyone who classifies anything is only doing it because they're exercising power delegated from the president. So Trump's making this claim, well, I declassified these documents. If he could show that he actually had done that, he would actually be in the clear. He just can't show that he ever did that. Biden can't make that argument. Biden was vice president. Most of these documents sound like they were classified by other people. Biden can't claim, oh, I had them because they were declassified, so it's okay. They're still classified as far as everyone knows. So even though Trump involves many more documents, Trump involves, as far as we know so far, Biden might have more, we don't know. Even though Trump's 
is a story of fighting with the government and refusing to hand back government property. He also has defenses available to him that Biden doesn't have. Look, I think John has done it just about right. The obstruction issues have been effectively negated by prompt legal action. They turn things over as quickly as they can, unless there's some portion of this particular event that we don't know about, which indicated some untoward delay. Trump was always his own worst enemy in the way in which he does these things, and he could get himself caught on collateral offenses. Uh, I, I think the one little note of caution that I would ask, because I think John has covered this well, is we still do not know what other information is going to come up in the course of the investigation. And we know what uh, Merrick Garland did, is he picked a very aggressive investigator to deal with the situation that was coming out of Trump. It's not sure that he's picked the same kind of investigator to deal with the Biden stuff. It's also the case on the Biden side of this situation. Independence from the White House is really very, very important, even more important than it is on the other side. And one of the things that's constantly hanging over this is the conviction of a large number of people, which I think is quite reasonable, uh, that uh, Merrick Garland is not an independent actor, but is in some sense a political agent responsive to the demands of the White House. He just doesn't seem to have a strong enough personality uh, to project the notion he's going to follow the evidence where it leads instead of saying he's going to follow his lead from people elsewhere inside the administration. So uh, we'll watch this story play out. And my guess is that unless there's some major change, uh, Biden will weather the storm with a little bit of unhappiness. Uh, but if it turns out there is a major change, it could turn into a crisis. Uh, let me let me pick up on something you said there, because this was something that I wanted to ask you about. So we now have a special counsel looking at Biden's handling of classified documents. We have, as you mentioned, a special counsel looking at Trump's handling of classified documents. He's wrapping things up, but John Durham is still around as special counsel looking into the origins of the Russia investigation. And the Republicans in Congress have been asking Attorney General Garland to give special counsel designation to the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who's investigating Hunter Biden. Uh, and th this is a pace of having special counsels that we, we have not really <laughs> seen in the history of of the Justice Department, I mean, how should we think about this? Is, is this proliferation of special counsels um, a necessary evil? I think the Hunter Biden investigation is in many ways the most important because there you're not talking about a slip of documents. You're talking about a conscious potential course of dealing involving both the Ukraine and in China and perhaps somewhere else where it is alleged that the big guy was Biden who's getting money shunted to him one way or another from somebody else. And in fact, that's one of the things, by the way, which I think is actually relevant to the Biden investigation here, which does not cut in his favor. Was there any Chinese support for the Biden administration Pence? center. And we know that uh, the Chinese government gave large graphs to Penn. Uh, they were not designated as graphs to the Biden Center. Uh, but there has been no accounting on the part of the University of Pennsylvania as to which of their general sources were done. Money is fungible. And so what happens is the money is put into a fund that is spent on Chinese affairs or ancient texts. And then a fraction of that sum from other source is now going to be devoted for the Biden Penn Center. One can say, 
doesn't matter where the money comes from, so long as there was an understanding that if money comes in for one purpose, or some money from somewhere else is going to help fund Biden, then you have the additional complication that there may well be a serious political compromise of interest, which would carry over past the time at which he becomes president. And so I don't think he's out of the woods in any particular event. I just hope the worst doesn't come to pass with respect to this man. Um, and one reason is I think he does have a life insurance policy as president. Her name is Kamala Harris. His numbers are never positive, but her numbers are even worse. And there's nobody that I'm aware of who actually thinks that she's competent enough to become president of the United States. And I think that really complicates the question of how far you're prepared to push the investigation. There's one last thing I want to ask you guys on this topic. John, as a guy who's handled sensitive paperwork like this in a government job, I want to get your take on this. CNN ran a story the other day, which felt in many ways like just running interference for Biden, in which they quoted a lot of people from the national security world saying things like, oh, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time. It's mostly by accident. People inadvertently taking home material they're not supposed to. But there, there was an interesting point embedded in that, which was several of the people quoted saying it's sort of inevitable because of the sheer volume of classified material. This, this piece cited a government report from 2017 that showed 50 million times information was marked as classified in that fiscal year. There is this criticism that the government overclassifies, that a lot of stuff is sort of hidden away inappropriately. Are you sympathetic to that argument? Well, regardless of whether there's overclassification or not, I don't remember anyone saying this when Trump was right. under investigation right. for Mar Lago. <laughs> but uh, putting that to one side, yeah, someone who handled, you know, very, you know, the class, same kind of documents of level of classification that we're talking about with Trump and Biden regularly. I mean, there are all kinds of procedures for handling this, and you have to be very careful about them. There are secured facilities, secured rooms, and when you go work in the government, you are told and instructed exactly how to handle them, and you're told you could go to jail if you mishandle them, and people do go to jail for mishandling them. And to make it so, you know, this, this is a law that's going to really only apply to the little guy who works for the government, because this is the thing that makes me dubious about this argument when it's applied to people like uh, Trump or Biden, is that they don't, you know, they're not there trying to memorize the combination to the safe and double wrapping the documents and putting them in the safe. They have people who do that for them. So when you're the president or you're the attorney general who I work for, you know, it's my job as the aide to bring the document to the attorney general. And then he reviews it. He may sign it or do whatever he wants to with it. And then I make sure that it gets to the right place. There's all kinds of people whose only job in the White House is to make sure that classified right. documents are in the right place. And so if Biden has them or if Trump has them, to me, the idea that's, oh, it's just simple inadvertence and a mistake, I'm less, I believe that less because there's so many staff around those two people in particular, the president and the vice president, who are responsible for this. If it was like one document or two documents, yes, but hundreds of documents or three different locations, I tend to believe less that's a mistake. I tend to believe less that it's the result of just overclassification. And I, and I tend not to agree with people who raise defenses only for Biden that apply just as well to Trump. Right. All right, guys, there's a bunch of different storylines from the Supreme Court that I want to get your reaction to. First and foremost, we got a report yesterday from the marshal of the Supreme Court on the investigation into the leak of the draft opinion in the Dobbs case. 
and they've got nothing. Uh, it is not possible to determine the identity <laughs> of any individual who may have disclosed the document or how the draft opinion ended up with Politico. That's the quote. There is a suggestion here, too, that uh, it most likely came from inside the building, that they don't think it was a it was a hack. John, are you surprised by this? So I, I really actually recommend people read this. It's actually very short. It's like 20 pages. Uh, 20 pages. And, yeah, and it's very interesting. It's it's worth reading just for the historical precedence of it. I mean, this has never happened before. There's never been a leak of a full opinion before. There's never been an investigation before of the court and its employees uh, for a leak. So, the, I mean, just reading about how they did it and how the court works, people are interested in the, how the court works. We'll learn a lot about how the court works. And after you read about how the court works, you wonder, uh, maybe they should go back to the old mimeograph machines where you would put one side with blue ink and then you would spin the little ball or the barrel <laughs> around and put paper on it to make copies because the place sounds, we were just talking about right, all the measures you go through to make sure there's secured information in the executive branch. And having worked at the court too, I can test this as the case. The place is utterly unsecured. So uh, just to give you uh, some uh, interesting tidbits from the report. One, re one first, I'm not surprised they didn't catch anybody because they didn't have subpoena power. And so if they don't have subpoena power, you know, the, the people doing the investigation were not criminal investigators. They could not right, force people to testify. Um, it sounds like they, they did reduce the number of people who had access to the draft to something around 80 people, I believe. So what they tried to do to get around this was to say, um, at the end of the interview, of course, all 80, they say, said they didn't leak it. Um, well, so it must have been Tom Cruise came down through the roof on a trapeze wire <laughs> act and got it. But they say, you know, no, no, all 80 said they didn't leak it. So uh, they had them sign forms at the end with a notary public under oath saying they didn't leak it. And so then their claim is, well, it's kind of like a subpoena because now you could be violating uh, the federal law that says you can't lie to federal investigators. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure I'm convinced by that. So uh, another tidbit, they seem to have firmly ruled out that it was an external hack. Um, they seem to have uh, ruled out that any kind of tampering with the court's information technology occurred. So they seem to suggest, you know, most of the investigation was on the people who had the ability to print it out or who had physical access to the opinion. And then the last thing you get, and this is where the investigation fell apart, is the court clearly had no system to figure out who made copies, who printed it out. For example, there's no, there's are some computers there are network printers, but some printers are just physically, they're called local printers. They're just attached to the computer. You can print all kinds of stuff out of those and no one knows what you printed out or not. Um, they apparently don't have a system to tell how many people printed out the file or not. So uh, they, now uh, one last thing I'll say is uh, I also think that uh, the court martial um, did not uh, go, it was not as aggressive as they could have been because the last thing I'll ask, I think this will spark Richard's interest since he loves burdens of proof now and standards of stuff. Is <laughs> <laughs> they said that they couldn't figure out by a preponderance of the evidence who had done that. Now, any of our listeners and friends who've worked in the criminal justice system know that that is not the standard for getting a search warrant. That is not the standard for starting a criminal investigation. 
The standard is probable cause, which to me is a lower standard than preponderance of the evidence. So I think if you'd handed this off to the Justice Department or even to a state DA, they would have gone farther and spread the net wider and then been even more intrusive because the court set a burden of proof on itself uh, that was so high that they I don't know if they could really get the investigation off the ground and as broad as it should have been. Richard, can I ask you to add one thing to your response to, I'm sure, everything John just said, just for the, the dumb lay people like me out there? Sure. Obviously, if you're found to be the leaker in this case, that's career ending, at least current career. Maybe it makes you a hero in some act. It may make circles. you a celebrity, yes. But does it cross any criminal <laughs> line to leak an unpublished Supreme Court opinion? Well, I mean, the answer is I'd have to look at the statute book. The presumption would be you have to find a statutory crime articulated in advance that covers the particular situation. I'm not sure whether one such exists. It's interesting in the discussions that we've had so far, nobody has pointed to that particular statute. The second point that you want to do is it may well be that this is not just a single person who was engaged in the leak of the statute. It could have been somebody who took the document out of a file, gave it to a friend who was outside the office, had it leaked from there, put the thing back into the file and wear gloves on the whole time so that any investigation that you made of the premises would not yield the kinds of gaps that you find with the Trump Biden library and the Trump library. And then that other person's doing it. At that point, um, it may well be that you get a conspiracy to commit something. But again, the conspiracy has to be to commit some kind of a criminal offense. And it's not clear what has happened there. I think the basic assumption was that whoever did this was going to find their careers were ruined. Um, um, and that that would be enough of a sanction. Uh, but at this particular point, um, uh, we don't know exactly how this thing went. Uh, is, was it done only by the Supreme Court? That seems to be what John suggested to me, and I'm not in a position to deny that or anything else. Uh, the question is, would you bring in some kind of independent experts, the FBI, well, they're compromised in some way, or somebody else to sort of help them with this? And so what you really are worried about, whether or not the internal search that the Supreme Court did was done by people actually know this stuff well enough to be able to take advantage of God knows what kind of subtle tells that uh, point to one person or another. So I, I think what's going to happen is that this thing is going to leave a kind of a miserable taste in everybody's mouth. And it's going to tie into another topic that we're about to talk about at some point, the polarization of the Supreme Court, because it's easy to say, aha, and this was a Republican who leaked it to make sure that Justice Alito would not go back on his position. Well, aha, this was a Democrat who leaked it to make sure that the opposition to the doctrine was sought early and often, even before it comes out. Uh, you have two theories, both of which are plausible, neither of which are proved. And so I think, in fact, what's going to happen with this current situation is that the sort of the speculation will start to continue. This is not like the JFK assassination, where by the time you got to the third iteration some years later, everybody knew that there was not an independent bullet because the sound technology had advanced on the tapes so that you could say it was, you know, uh, whatever his name is, Leo Harvey Oswald acting alone and that was it. In this particular situation, you don't got one guy and you don't know whether you're supposed to be looking for one of many. So it's going to leave, I think, a, a kind of nervous uneasiness about the situation, about the ineffectiveness of the whole thing. I guarantee you that we are going to get more comments on this episode about you defending the Oswald acted alone theory than any of the substance. Well, I don't think it's even regarded as controversial today. Um, I mean, it, it, back when I was at Oxford, 
Richard, you're the you're the magic bullet, single magic uh, not, bullet though, guy. There were several bullets, I think. Um, I remember when I was at Oxford and, you know, John Sparrow tried to defend himself against some guy who was running on the other side. Uh, the defenders of the orthodox theories had it very, very tough. Uh, I'm saying what happened is that the evidence that came out later was technological advances, which seemed to get rid of some of the ambiguities that were early there. I do know that Earl right. Warren always thought that this was an open and shut case. How do I know that? Because I was friends with somebody who had actually participated in that investigation. And uh, that's what he had said about Warren. And that's what Warren himself said about the whole, whole kind of thing. But in this case, if you don't have a solution that's credible and evidence, what it does is it leads to a proliferation of kind of conspiracy theories on every side. And we already have a very highly fractured Supreme Court culture that's going around. And the inability to solve this case definitively is going to put greater strains on an already stressed system. That's the only point I'm trying to make now. John, a, a lot of journalists, I've noticed this in the, in the reporting, mm. are sort of fixated on the fact that this report seems to indicate that the justices themselves were not interviewed as part of this investigation. And it's never explicit, but this coverage feels like a callback to this rumor that the New York Times printed a few months ago, suggesting that either Justice Alito or his wife had leaked the decision in the Hobby Lobby case several years ago to some activists. I'd actually like to get your take on those rumors because we haven't talked about them on the show before, but, but does it matter to you in this case if the justices themselves weren't interviewed here? Well, uh, if they were, I don't see any proof of it in the report. Um, it, it just it doesn't actually name all the people who were interviewed. It just says uh, about 80 and how they came up with it. So it could be the case that no justices were interviewed. I think that I'm not surprised that Chief Justice Roberts, who wants to maintain collegiality on the court, and the important thing is for the court to you know, to secure itself uh, going forward and to also maintain the you know, sort of candor and openness they need to function. I'm not surprised Chief Justice Roberts would not order an intrusive investigation. And I, I, the, the worst way you could poison relations amongst the nine justices would be to treat them all as criminal suspects. But look, a justice wouldn't need to ever do it. That would be crazy. If a justice wanted to leak an opinion, they would just give it to one of their clerks and have them leak the opinion. I'm sure a lot of the justices don't even know how the word processing system at the court works and emails. When I clerked at the court, there were justices there who didn't know how email worked. Okay, so I'm not, you know, I, I'm sure there were justices who didn't know how to type. So I, I, I can't imagine a justice would actually do something like that. Just it would be so stupid. Now, the, the, the other point, though, is I do think in the speculation before this report, and nothing in the report changes my mind on this, uh, I agree with those speculations, that's most likely a law clerk who um, did it. And one thing the report, the report, by the way, has all these you know, recommendations for securing computer printers, basically. And oh, by the way, the other interesting thing is they gave uh, the report and the investigation to Michael Chertoff, right. a friend of mine, to review externally. And he kind of blessed the whole thing and said he couldn't think of anything they could have done more in the investigation. But I, I, the reason I think it's law clerks, and I think that what will prompt should be a reexamination of whether they should continue to use law clerks in the same way, is law clerks are temporary one-year employees. Right? There's four of them per justice. If there's anyone who's going to leak it's going to be them because they're not around. They don't suffer the long-term consequences to the institution for a leak. They're all going to go off and do it. In fact, after the end of June of last year, they were outside the jurisdiction of the court. They weren't employees anymore because they only worked there for a year. 
So they're the ones who have every incentive. And they're also because they're only 26 or 27 years old. They're the ones who get so wrapped up in the cases of that year. They don't think about John, the long-term they harm to the institution of the court. Yes. I, I mean, it just says they interviewed everybody who had access to and the, include and the, so that that include the court. Look, I have the following yeah, kind of just concern. Uh, what's the probability of something like this happening again? Um, and deterrence is always. Wasn't well, it a lot higher? Isn't it a lot higher now? So, in my view, is the most important case of the last uh, fifty years, and they didn't get caught. Well, uh, that's true. But on the other hand, is anybody going to be willing to do this with a single opinion on a case which is not that important, where you don't think that the outcome of the twenty twenty two fall election may turn on the response to the opinion? My view about it is that what you just said cuts in the opposite direction. That uh, for a case of ordinary. Uh, concern. The scope of two section 30, for example, which 230 coming up under the uh, Communications Decency Act, uh, this, the stakes are not just high enough for somebody to want to do that. So I don't think it's going to happen again. And I think that's one of the reasons why the investigation did not go that one extra step uh, to interview justices and so forth. And then here's another prediction. If it does happen a second time, even on a lesser matter, that I think will precipitate much more powerful interventions because at that point, we now say that the U hypothesis, done once, not caught, done twice, not caught, is going to provoke a very severe kind of reaction. But at least my first approximation about this is I do not see a repetition. And one of the reasons why I think they could live with this verdict is they don't think it will occur at a foreign on case. It is a probabilistic judgment, sure. not a certain judgment. But that would be my read on the probabilities. Oh, Richard, Richard, let me ask you this. So, you ask you me know, anything. We're focusing on you were focusing on cases where there's like a, a political importance or a jurisprudential yeah. importance. Again, something a young clerk would think was so important. My remember the other thing I the reason I think it's a clerk is anyone else who leaks in Washington would just leak the executive summary. Only a law clerk would think everyone would want to read 75 pages <laughs> of an opinion. Right? Like that, that so shows it's a clerk who leaked the damn thing. But anyway, but but your your you know your point is about things that are politically constitutionally significant. Here's what's worrying me worries me. A lot of the cases at the court involve billions and billions of dollars. What if some hedge fund guy Goes to one of the clerks says, uh, "I'll figure out a way to give you hundred million dollars if you leak." Okay, now look, me. I mean, I think that's a, that's the thing that actually worries oh, well, me more. It's a different. You read this report, and there's no way they'd be able to catch something. No, from John, and John, no one would even know it was ever leaked. John, um, let's go back to the history of trade secret law because you raise a very interesting question. Oh, here we go. This is what people are tuning in for. Uh oh, the history of trade secret. Well, law. Uh, no, Roman, because John, you're John, you're an John, you're an intuitive <laughs> genius. I'm, I'm trying to praise you for your. Stupidness of the subject. Uh, the go. standard situation in trade secrets is the doctrine that is stolen stays stolen, but is never disclosed publicly. So the usual situation is I know something about how you're designing a part for your convertible roof, and I can incorporate it in my technology. If I disclose this stuff publicly, then I'm sharing the secret with the rest of the law, and that means that I could create what would be a duopoly into a competitive market. And so that the typical situation and the general codes on tree secret don't even worry about the problem of the stuff being public. 
But when it becomes political and it becomes public, at that particular point, the situation becomes very, very different uh, because the issue is how are you going to start to deal with the reputational damage to the firm? Uh, so assume that there is a firm that uh, is leaked about stuff saying, ah, oh, their environmental protocols are not up to snuff. And huge regulation is going to come back down on that. The question that then one would want to ask is whether or not want to go after the public leaker. And I was involved in several of these cases about 20 odd years ago. And the reaction of both CEOs was as follows. I'll give it to you. Um, if I, in fact, catch this particular guy, uh, what's going to happen is there'll be some modest fine that will be imposed. And then there will be another repetition of the story that happened. And I said, I'll be damned if I want to conduct an investigation that will allow some reporter on some prominent network uh, to highlight the terrible event in the history of my firm. And so what they did is in both cases, they shut it down. I was in one, involved in one of these cases. I won't mention which one. And I'm sitting in the room and we're planning our question how we're going to work on appeal in one of these situations. And the phone comes up and it turned out the CEO said, what can you do to improve my product sales with this investigation? Shut it down. And so help me gone. The phone call came at, say, 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Ten seconds later, we were all sent packing. Um, uh, so I, I think what you're talking about here is the private situation is much more dangerous because you'll never discover that it's been stolen. And if that's the case, it can happen multiple times. Uh, the publicity situation is for one for which you could get a really powerful upset. And most trade secret theft, it turns out, are done for industrial espionage purpose, at which point further disclosure is irrelevant. So that's why you're such a wise young man, Mr. Wood. You. <laughs> okay. I, I, I want you to get, to get you guys to one other sort of inside detail. This is what Richard was foreshadowing when he was talking about polarization. There was this very strange piece that ran a few days ago in, in The Atlantic with the title, Do Supreme Court Justices Do Not Seem to Be Getting Along? Uh, strange, because in my judgment, it doesn't really deliver on that headline. You get a few examples of justices being modestly combative in the course of oral arguments and one sort of awkward exchange between Justice Alito and Justice Kagan. But then... In the same piece, you get accounts of Alito and Kagan joking together and, and descriptions of the fact that everyone's actually pretty collegial on the, the non-hot button cases. But here's what interests me about this. There is an implicit assumption in this piece that a non-collegial court is a dysfunctional court. Now, obviously, all things being equal, you'd prefer stability to the alternative, but there are lots and lots of places in the government that don't operate that way. I mean, the executive branch is famously prone to rivalry. It's rare to find a secretary of state and a secretary of defense, for instance, who don't want to kill each other. So, John, I'll start with you, having clerked at the court. How important is it to the functioning of the court that the justices actually get along? I don't think they have to get along to do their job. It might be the case they don't have to get along to do their job well. Uh, there are great stories. You know, Richard is... Uh, familiar with um, maybe more than I am of the Warren Court and how uh, they were often at odds and quite nasty to each other. I remember, I think is it there's a f apocryphal story. So as you know, after uh, oral argument, the justices get together in uh, what's called conference where they talk about the case and they decide how they're going to vote and announce how they're going to vote. And there's some famous apocryphal story where Justice 
Douglas, I believe, just stormed out and left because Felix Frankfurter was going on on some long tear. And I think Douglas said, when Professor Frankfurter is done with his lecture, please tell me and I'll come back. That's something like that is unheard of. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, some part of me actually wishes that went on more often. But, you know, that's that kind of antagonistic behavior is unheard of. But that doesn't mean that, that just goes to show that, you know, this current era of politeness at the court and good the era of good feelings isn't the norm and necessarily and doesn't really have to be the case. You could I, you could say there are a lot of appellate courts where there are a lot of judges who can't stand each other personally, but they do a good job because the job is to be tough on each other, right? To improve each other's work by writing dissents or getting mm-hmm. them to change their opinions. You don't have to be nice guys. Look at law faculties. <laughs> Look at law faculties. You know, part of the job of being on a law faculty is going to workshops and critiquing each other's work. And you may be great friends and still critique them hard, or you could hate each other and still critique each other well. So I, I don't actually see why, uh, you know, they have to be buddies. They're not like the three amigos driving around in their little mariachi outfits along the, you know, in Mexico uh, to do their job well. Right, let me give a counter version of this. It's not a story from the Warren court. It's from the Vincent court, right? And the case was one generally of some importance. It was called Brown v. Board of Education. And what happened under the standard accounts is that the justices got to bickering. And to the extent that they got to bickering, they could not agree on who would write the opinion and how many other opinions would start to be written. And the whole thing was essentially carried over to the next term. He died. Earl Warren starts to come into the court. And what he does is he plays the master road and he figures out what the winning strategy is, write an insipid opinion, which essentially gets the right result done, but don't do anything that's going to step on somebody's pet peeve of one kind or another. And so you get an opinion which says famously, everybody knows that segregation has no place under the Equal Protection Clause, full stop. And then some empirical studies about how black and white children work. And what happened is the academics had a field day in criticizing all of this stuff. But that was not the market that Warren was after. He got the people to work together. He got the division to some extent to go through. And then it was a set of hard slogging through the rest of the 50s, given massive resistance and everything else. But I think if, in fact, that opinion had been written in a way that had been too contentious, or if it had been written in a way that would have provoked the dissent by somebody who wasn't happy with the way the conference had gone, it would have been a very, very different world. Another illustration and I don't know how this one played out, I think this is closer to John's story, is that uh, Professor Felix Frankfurter not only lectured to Justice Douglas on the court, but he lectured in the classroom to Justice Brennan when he was a student at the Harvard Law School. And this carried over to the whole thing having to do uh, with Baker and Carr and the question of one person, one vote, and all the rest of that stuff. And it was really amazing to see uh, the level of, of you know, real unhappiness that uh, that Brennan had with respect to um, Frankfurt. And I now will tell you my inside story about this. I had a great teacher from Minnesota named Hal Chase who taught government at Columbia, and he managed to inveigle us an invitation to go down and watch the court and then talk to Justice Brennan afterwards. And so Justice Brennan is going on, and this guy can charm the pants off an alligator. I mean, he is just the smoothest. 
happiest talker you could ever have. He's like, that's where Richard learned all his yeah, social all skills. All my social from. skills. And I was sitting in the back of the room being highly diffident under the circumstances. But there was some guy <laughs> sitting in the middle of this long table to my right and to his left. And the question comes out like this. Say, uh, Mr. Justice Brennan, don't you think that Justice Frankfurt was correct in Cold Grove and Green when he said we were getting into a political <laughs> thicket, right? And what happened is uh, Mr. Congeniality disappeared and this tough cop came up and Justice Brennan gave that guy a dressing down the likes of which I've rarely seen everywhere else. And what was going on? It was obviously projecting his unhappiness with <laughs> Felix Frankfurt on this poor junior at the Columbia College and let him have what for. Um, and so I do think that these <laughs> things do come out in strange kinds of ways. Um, I don't think either of them persuaded the other. The only reason why that conflict stopped was that Brand stayed on the court and Felix Frankfurt, now um, close to 80, uh, resigned. Right. How do you like my right. stories? <laughs> that, that, was, that was a pretty good one, Richard. Uh, nice I'm going to take you guys in a very different direction for your, your final question, because the, the two of you may be focused on the future of the country, but I assure you that the hottest legal news for most Americans this week comes out of New Mexico. We, we just got word, I think it was yesterday, that both Alec Baldwin and the armorer on the film he was working on, which was called Rust, they're both going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter for this accident where Baldwin fired what turned out to be a loaded gun, accidentally killed a cinematographer on the film. So again, let's start with my layman's confusion and go from there. Richard, I completely understand the charge against the armorer because the armorer yells cold gun before they start this, meaning the gun isn't loaded. What I'm a little confused by is how you then charge Baldwin, who is relying on the assurance of this person who is on set precisely to provide him information about whether or not what he's doing here is safe. What am I missing here? You're missing a lot of things, all of which are not fully understood. Uh, uh, the first thing to note is involuntary manslaughter is sort of a kind of a uh, charge of negligence of some kind or another. But if it's simple negligence, uh, then it should just be a tort because there would be no mens rea. So what you have to do is you got to pump this stuff up in some way uh, in order to make sure that it's, quote, more than simple negligence involved in the death, which is the standard way to put it. And so then when you start thinking, well, what did they do? And well, the first thing you start to say is that this was a chronic problem. And what do we mean by a chronic problem? Well, you say that this was not just inadvertent negligence. There was a structural issue going on because there was a great deal of unhappiness at the work site and some of the workers left. And then you get a statement which could either be devastatingly true or devastatingly irrelevant, which is, and they hired non-union labor. Normally, those words are music to my ears. But in this particular case, the clear situation was the union guys were professional. These are guns and you're hiring guys who were scared. So at this point, it's not just simple negligence. What it is, it's making a conscious decision that is so careless, which you only know can increase the way in which this uh, particular situation is. So when you have anything like that, what you have to do is to be aware of the fact that the question of involuntary manslaughter, how much did you know that there was, in fact, a potential bonfire out there which would be lit with a spark? And so then you come with the second question. And of course, it's the usual kind of Troy Senate naivete, which I love you for, uh, which is you assume that it's one of <laughs> the other. I'm here to set you up. 
Uh, one of the other guys who are going to be responsible for all of this. Uh, what it happens is what you have done is made an argument that maybe the armorer should be primary because in terms of the industrial organization of this firm, he's the one who's supposed to make sure that the gun is cold. Uh, but if you're a prosecutor, what you always do is you tie the, not always, but often tie the big hard case uh, to the more suspect case. And you're saying, oh, well, Alex Baldwin was in fact somebody who is responsible because he knew about all the antecedent changes in the operation and should not have had the same kind of confidence in the armorer who did this. And so therefore he becomes a co-conspirator in this particular kind of situation. Now, there's also a political element here, which is extremely complicated, uh, which is nobody knows who the armor is, and everybody's heard of Alec Baldwin. And, and so somebody's going to come along and say, this is not a serious criminal charge. This is an effort of a prosecutor to get fame and fortune in one of these cases in the hope to advance his kind of career. Um, for me to make a kind of final definitive judgment on this thing would require, I think, a pretty intensive review of what the record turned out to be, rather than taking some of the newspaper stories, which sort of indicate the high points in the situation. Let's put it to you this way. This is not a simple, ordinary negligence case. There's much more that's going on here. Whether it's enough to tip it over the criminal line is hard. Uh, the next question we're going to have to ask is, how is uh, Baldwin going to respond? And the armor are going to respond. If they, uh, Baldwin may well plead not guilty forcing this guy to his proof. And then what he will do is testify to his own knowledge of everything that he did in order to avoid this. Or will he take the Fifth Amendment? I mean, it's a hard call to make if you're not going to plead guilty. And it may well be that he hopes when they try to convict the armor that they'll be so powerful in the attack on him uh, that the secondary response of Baldwin shrinks in insignificance in comparison. Uh, I think he will probably plead not guilty to this. And I think it's about even money as to whether or not the prosecutor will win. I think Senek is an astute predictor of the future when he says that the guy who's running the armory has got the greater exposure. Uh, but in criminal law cases where collective responsibility turns out to be the norm, one zero distributions of culpability amongst people involved in a common scheme, even in asymmetrical roles, is a relative rarity. John, I'll give you the final word. Do you have any position on this beyond wanting to see Alec Baldwin go to jail for any reason whatsoever? Oh, you just took away my line. <laughs> I, I knew was it. Like, what, what Alec Baldwin should be punished for is making bad movies. <laughs> oh, no. He's made a lot of good ones, too. He's got a great no, voice. Yeah, it's got a there's great no voice. Way that, there is no way. I, I say this with absolute certainty, though I do not know this. There is no way that John Yu is not a Hunt for Red October fan. Oh, no. I, I was going to say, isn't that his best movie? It's, it's up there. The Edge is pretty good too, if you've ever seen that with him and Anthony Hopkins. I I I, I don't watch porn movies. No, no. Which of his romantic? Okay. Com which of his? Which, what's his most famous romantic comedy? Uh, I don't know if it's his most famous, but he was in uh, the the movie, the Nancy Myers movie with Diane Keaton, the name of which is eluding me oh, at the moment. Yeah, it's complicated. That. That was it's bad. complicated. It's complicated, yeah. yeah. It was, That's a it very was complicated, so complicated story. It was bad. Look, I happen to think yeah. he's... He a, was also, he was in uh, one of the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, and wasn't he on yeah, Saturday you know, Night Live? He was hosted, sure he hosted at tons of times, was on 30 Rock. He's very funny, too. Yeah, I mean, he's a very gifted actor. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We, Wait, who was that? That was the voice Scott. of Christmas past being frustrated Cor with our collective ignorance. Cor correctly pointing out the fact that we excluded probably the most famous monologue by anyone ever delivered by Alec Baldwin. It's a pretty good point. So I, I would just say, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you, 
uh, Troy. I mean, is it really the job of Alec Baldwin to check or any actor who's handed a gun that's been right prepared and been worked on by someone who's hired by the, you know, the production company to handle fake guns and they tell him it's right. It's loaded uh, with, uh, with blanks and that he's right. It's the actor's job to check the ammunition in the gun. I bet a lot of actors wouldn't, Right. If the, the blank looks similar to a real round, how's the actor supposed to take this? Is he supposed to have a scale and then weigh the, you know, a live round against the fake? I don't see how, you know, what the duty of care of the actor should be um, beyond what, you know, Alec Balmer did, given all the other people whose job it is to make sure no accident occurs. Do you well, see this, Richard? My level of my level of naivete is enough to get you tenured at UC Berkeley. Well, I, it's not only that. <laughs> oh, you drove, no, but, well, you would have gotten tenure fifteen years no, ago. No, but, but, but you it was missing a very now. salient distinction. Uh, mm. Your argument is much more powerful as a defense if the case is charged, and it's not going to loom as large in the eyes of an ambitious prosecutor on the question of whether or not to bring the charge. Uh, because one of the possibilities that you have is you look at the range of punishments and you work out a settlement in which he pays a fine, doesn't go to jail. Um, but admits some degree of criminal responsibility less than that normally associated with involuntary murder. So the, 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 basically the, the power of the arguments that you need to make to get a conviction is stronger than that which you need to make a charging decision. And so that could be something that plays a role. My attitude is if I were the jury now, based upon what I had seen, I would acquit Baldwin uh, for the same reasons I think that you guys are saying. That's why it is in cases like this, the prosecution in one of these involuntary manslaughter, more than negligence cases, you have to have a very powerful incremental improvement, a construction of the case, so as to make it clear that the obvious uh, response, I could confidently rely on this guy, is not there, which is one of the reasons why they said all the uneasiness on the set beforehand leading to a change in personnel may well lead to a requirement for increased caution, even by somebody who's normally entitled to rely on the better judgment of people more skilled in a particular craft. Uh, it's going to be hard on the criminal side. That's why these guys get paid the big bucks, and we don't. <laughs> you, you do pretty well for yourself. All right, fellas, that's our time. My thanks to you both, as always, to our producer, Scott Emmergood, and to all of our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Until then... Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Mm-hmm.